is William Edelglass, and I serve as Director of Studies here at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Barry, Massachusetts, on the traditional homelands of the Nipmuc people, many of whom still live in this area. And before I introduce Joseph Goldstein, I'd just like to give you a sense of how the evening is going to unfold. First, though, if you would like to read a live transcript of the words that are being spoken, if you go down to the bottom of your Zoom bar, there's a little box that says CC, and below that it says Show Captions. And if you press on that, it will give you most of the words that will be said and sometimes very amusing um, versions of what is said. So as Joseph has written in the essay that was shared yesterday, um, the question of the self, non-self or not-self, is one of the most challenging and also one of the most significant in Buddhist theory and practice. And tonight, we're going to begin, after a brief meditation that Joseph will lead, we'll begin with questions that I will pose to Joseph about the self. And then after about 45 minutes, we'll open up the conversation. And if you are interested in posing a question, again, if you look at the bottom of the Zoom bar, you can see a box that says chat. And if you click on that, you can um, you can look for my name and then try to send the text, the chat to me. And if you send the chat to me, I will be able to read it. If you send the chat a question to Joseph, he will not be checking his chat. So he will not be able to respond to it. And with this many people, we won't be able to respond to all the questions. Um, sometimes they'll be combined. And if at any point you are having technical challenges with Zoom or anything else, please feel free to send an email to contact at buddhistinquiry.org. And thank you to my colleague, Cassie, for making all the logistical processes work so smoothly. So, I think on an evening like this, Joseph Goldstein doesn't really need an introduction, but still it feels appropriate to say that Joseph has been practicing Buddhist meditation since the 1960s and teaching meditation retreats, mindfulness, loving kindness retreats, sight retreats since the mid 1970s in many places around the world. And speaking for myself and also I think many others, um, what I really deeply appreciate about your teaching, Joseph, is the clarity of both your response to questions of doctrine and how you formulate questions of doctrine, but also the clarity of the meditation instructions that you give. And that clarity and the humility with which you offer it and your sense of humor has been a Dharma gate, an entry into the Dharma for so many people. And um, that has meant so much to me and to so many others. And I should say that Joseph is also the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, 
which is right next door to us in Barry, and also a co-founder and longtime board member of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. So thank you so much for joining us tonight, Joseph. And I turn it over to you. Okay, thanks, William. <laughs> um, so good to be with all of you. And as William said, I think we'll start with just a few minutes of meditation, a chance to simply settle in and arrive and uh, get here. Take uh, some comfortable meditative posture, uh, not too comfortable, <laughs> just uh, some posture that keeps you alert. Uh, and again, we'll just sit for a few minutes. Uh, if you like, you can close your eyes, maybe take a few deep breaths. It's a way of uh, settling into the body. And then letting the breath find its own natural rhythm. Keeping in mind that it's not a breathing exercise, it's an exercise in awareness. In a very relaxed way, feeling the whole body, feeling yourself sitting. And simply become aware of the sensations of the body breathing. Breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. You can keep it that simple. See if you can feel each breath from the beginning through the middle to the end of the in-breath, beginning, middle, and end of the out-breath. Softening the eyes, the jaw, the heart, the belly. The body knows how to breathe. So it's simply feeling this very natural process.
If you notice the mind wandering in thought, as you become aware of that, simply begin again. <clears throat> breathing in, know you're breathing in. Breathing out, know you're breathing out. When you're ready, <clears throat> you can open your eyes, reconnecting with the world around you. When we start with the sitting, it's always tempting to just go on sitting, uh, but we have some things to talk about this evening. So, William. Okay. <clears throat> Joseph. Maybe... We'll start with what might be a deceptively simple question, but um, why, why did the Buddha pay so much attention to the self or not self or non-self or no self? Why, why, is, why is that such an important question for Buddhist traditions, and uh -huh. especially early Buddhism? Well, I think the, the importance of it is highlighted uh, in one teaching of the Buddha when he said that of all the different kinds of wrong view, the wrong view of self is the most dangerous, is the most problematic, the cause of the most suffering. And so it clearly is a central part of the Buddha's teaching and the whole path of awakening. I think a simple way of understanding why it's so important is when there is a strong view of self, which is in most people, this is the common way of understanding, you know, who we are in our lives. So it's the very prevalent view, which is why the exploration of non-self is so challenging, because it really goes against uh, almost our common sense understanding of who we are. So in that sense, it's a very radical teaching. But as long as we are caught up or identified or entangled in the view of self, then we spend our lives defending it, gratifying it, aggrandizing it, judging it. We have all these uh, responses that come out of this felt sense of an I of a self. And the Buddha was pretty clear about the path towards liberation, which is 
that what we're really practicing along the path is the practice of non-craving, of non-clinging. You know, that's the second and third noble truths of the teachings. But as long as there's a strong uh, sense of feeling of self in our lives, it's precisely that view of self that uh, just strengthens the craving in the mind and the clinging in the mind. Um, so that's why it's important to really begin to try to unpack uh, what this whole notion of self and non-self uh, is about, because it goes to the heart um, of the possibility of freedom. You know, when the Buddha <coughs> was asked what he teaches, he would often respond in the, in the simplest possible way. He would say, he simply teaches suffering and the end of suffering. Right? So that, that's, his, that's his mission. And really, as we undertake the practice, that can become the reference point for all of our understanding and for all our practices. You know, and, and how we're living our lives. Is what we're doing creating more suffering or leading us to the end of suffering? And as I say, understanding or unpacking this notion of self is really a key element of all this. Okay, so it's important to understand and unpack this notion of self. Maybe, uh, maybe we should start there. The, in the suttas, we often see the terms atta meaning self or oneself and bhugala meaning person. Um, so certainly it seems as if one can talk about oneself or the self and then the Buddha talks about himself. Um, so there seems to be some sense of self that we can talk about. What's the kind of sense of self that might be the wrong view in contrast to me saying, oh, I'm, I'm hungry, or right, right. me saying, oh, I see you there. So what, what's the wrong sense of self that um, is the wrong view? Yeah. Well, first to acknowledge that we do use this term, you know, self and I and me and mine and you uh, conventionally. You know, this is, this is our conventional language. Uh, and that's fine. There's, there's no problem with that. It would be very uh, cumbersome to go through life trying to communicate without using conventional language. But what the Buddha was pointing to was that self, the word self, the term self, is a designation for something. It's not something that exists in and of itself. It's simply a word that is used to designate the flow of changing experience of this mind and body, you know? So we wanna use the term, if we use the term, um, and not get caught in believing that the term is referring to something self-existing. There's no one behind the process, this mind-body process, there's no one behind it to whom it's happening. But yet that's what we often uh, intuit. 
you know, the thoughts, I'm having the thoughts or, you know, I'm having the feeling instead of the understanding, yeah, thoughts arise, feelings arise, sensations arise. And all of these are part of the flow of phenomena of changing, changing experience. And there's no one behind it to whom it happens. So I think it's important just to understand the difference between the conventional use of language, the conventional use of concepts, but not taking the concept to be the reality itself. And this is where uh, we often uh, get confused. So I'll give, you, I'll give you another example of how we often confuse concepts with the actual reality of the moment. And this is something very simple and there could be a million examples of it. You know, when we look outside and we see a tree, that's, that, that's how people would describe what they're experiencing. But the eye doesn't see tree. The eye just sees color and form. And then we create a concept designating that particular color and form, that tree. And so it's useful in that way, but it's not positing an experience uh, in and of itself. It's simply pointing to that experience. And that's what's meant by concepts as designations. Um, and of course, self is perhaps one of the most deeply held concepts that our lives revolve around. Um, yeah, so I hope that or for some clarity, and if not, you can <laughs> try to draw some more out of me. Yeah, there, there's been some great questions that have come in, and I'm going to ask. Well, really? <laughs> um, I already have two pages of questions that I've um, tabulated here. Um, around the question of conventional language, someone asked, would it make sense for us to move away from a language of I close my eyes to the eyes are closed. And in a minute, sometimes in the Barry world in which we live, people do speak of there's anger in the mind, or is do you think do you think that's helpful to loosen up a sense of self in our language by not using the word I? I think at times it can be useful. Uh, as long as it doesn't, we don't take it to the extreme of becoming awkward. <laughs> you know, it would be very, it would be very cumbersome to say these five aggregates are going to be walking into town today. <laughs> you know, it's there's no need for that. We can have a short, we could have a shorthand. I'm I'm walking into town. Yeah. But in some of the examples you used, where it's it's really not that awkward. We could just as easily say the eyes are closing as well as my eyes are closing. So in that way, it might help to decondition this strongly held attachment to the concept of self where we're, where we're using language uh, more accurately describing the process that's happening. So I would say, and maybe even in the guided meditation, uh, I don't know whether people you know, pick this up, but uh, when, when I would, you know, talk, I often give the instructions, 
being aware of the body breathing, right? Rather than be aware of your breath. Right? So just, just a, a slight little change of language in that might help to remind us, oh yeah, the body breathing is just an impersonal process. There's really not an I behind it. So I think there are times when it could be useful, but not to take it to an awkward extreme. Yeah. So you were talking about perception and talking about labeling. And then you mentioned the five aggregates. So when I think of perception, I think of um, and sensation and I think of labeling, I think of the aggregates. And I think one of the things that the aggregates do is explain something about our subjective experience in the way that the self is often taken to explain subjective experience. And it does so without recourse to the idea of the self. And I'm wondering if you wanna say a little bit more about what the five aggregates are and how they can help us understand mm -hmm. what it is to have our experience without a self. Mm -hmm. I realize that's a tall order. Yeah, it is. Uh, and it's just to say that for many years, at the beginning of my practice, uh, my teacher, Munindraji, my first Dharma teacher, uh, would speak a lot about the five aggregates because the Buddha spoke a lot about it. You know, when you read the suttas, the discourses, it's almost on every page where the Buddha is using that template of the five aggregates to describe experience. And just as a reminder for those uh, uh, folks who may not be that familiar with it, uh, the five aggregates are describing all the aspects of the experience of this mind and body. And the first one is the body. In, in uh, sutta language, discourse language, it's called form, uh, but it really refers to the body or material elements. Then there's feeling, feeling tone which is different than emotion. Feeling tone is just that experience of things being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Now, just this is really interesting. The Buddhists pointing out that every single moment of experience at any of the sense doors, including the mind, always there's a feeling tone embedded in it. We're experiencing it either as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. The reason this is so important, and the Buddha highlighted it, is because this feeling tone plays a powerful conditioning role in the process of desire and aversion. Because something is pleasant, if we're not mindful of that feeling tone, oh, pleasant, I want, I like, I want more. If it's unpleasant, aversion, we want to push it away. So this feeling tone is a key element in our experience. The third aggregate is perception, which is the simple uh, recognition of what the object is. And all our use of concepts and language comes out of perception. Uh, just as an example of this, many of you may be familiar with the technique in meditation of mental noting, you know, in, out, or thinking, you know, heaviness, lightness, whatever it may be, 
those notes, those mental notes are not really a function of mindfulness, they're a function of perception that is recognizing what it is that's there. But again, this, this particular aggregate plays a really important role on our path because the clearer the perception, the easier it is. It's, it's the setup for being mindful. So the perception is like putting a frame around experience so that we can see it more clearly. So perception is the recognition. There's the body, there's feeling tone, there's perception. And then there's fourth aggregate. It's a big basket of phenomena. It highlights the factor of volition, which is so important because that's what carries uh, the karmic charge of every event. But it also includes all the other mental phenomena, all the different kinds of emotions and mind states, skillful and unskillful, uh, aside from feeling, tone, and perception, which have been singled out. So all the rest of the mind's activity is in this fourth aggregate of formations. And then the fifth aggregate is consciousness or the knowing faculty. What's, <laughs> what was striking to me about all this as my teacher would talk about this endlessly in the beginning, I just found it so boring. <laughs> you know, it sounded so theoretical and so abstract and he would go on and on and on about these aggregates. And it took me a long time in my practice to see what a critical role they played in, in the actual practice of meditation and understanding. So it's worth an exploration of this uh, to some depth, uh, you know, where we can go from it being simply Buddhist philosophy, which might or may not be interesting to you, but to see, no, this is talking about the very nature of who we are and what's so, astounding to me and and just shows the uh i know this seems like a funny word to use for the buddha but the brilliance of the buddha in being able to encapsulate every aspect of our experience within these five categories so i don't know i find that quite amazing we can, we can really understand every single aspect of our experience through the understanding of these aggregates. Um, I don't know, I could go on and on about this. I'll, I'll just say one thing and maybe it'll lead to some other questions. But in terms of understanding the aggregates as not self, and it, this formulation of the aggregates is key to this understanding And we'll talk more about this probably, you know, as the evening goes on, but it's not that, it's not that hard. It's a little hard, but not that hard to begin to understand the body as not self, but it's just doing its own thing, following its own laws. And we begin, can begin to see the very impermanent nature of the feeling tones and perceptions and all our mental states. 
where we really get caught, and this is the most challenging aspect in understanding that self, is to see the selfless nature of consciousness, of knowing. Because we can be aware of all the impermanence, changing nature of all this other phenomena, but still we think, well, I'm the one knowing it all, right? So I, I tend to think of it as this is the last holdout of self, you know? And so maybe later in the evening, we can talk a little bit about how to cut through that identification. I was glad to hear you talk about being bored when you're, maybe Manindraji was talking about the aggregates because I was hoping that some of the students who've been bored while I was talking about the aggregates not here and they could say, well, there's, there's, there's still hope that that, will, that that will pay off. So um, you, in your essay, Maybe this gets at the point you were just leading up to. In, in the essay that you wrote, Undreaming Oneself into Existence, you write about the way in which perception of impermanence leads to a perception of non-self, and that leads to nibbana in this very life. It's, you're working with a quotation from the suttas, one that I really love. And, um, I wonder if you want to start there maybe and look at the relationship between non-self and impermanence and, and also maybe say something about perception. It's, it's, it seems like it's an important thing that it's not just cognitively understanding, but there's a perception of impermanence and a perception of non-self that is liberating. How about, how about starting there? Okay. Uh... So first, I think the, the distinction you're making between kind of a cognitive understanding of impermanence and change is really quite different than the direct experience of it. And so we could go up to anybody on the street you know, and ask them, do things change? Everybody would say yes. You know, this is not this is not kind of a subtle understanding. So we we know on, on on the conceptual level, and to some degree on the experiential level, that things change, but we're not so often really focusing our mind in a way that is seeing or being in the process of change as it's happening. And that it's that direct perception of change that is transformative. The simple kind of conceptual understanding of things change, uh, that by itself is probably not gonna impact our lives that much. It's when we are in the direct experience of that flow that begins to open up really quite um, deep experiences of the Dharma. So I'll just give you an example. And this, this happened in one of my recent self-retreats. And I like the example because it points both 
to a depth of what's possible, and yet in a very ordinary circumstance where we don't have to be in some deeply concentrated state or there's a way of getting to the depth in a very simple uh, exercise. So I was going for a walk. Those of you who have been to IMS uh, or the study center know there's this three mile loop that people often walk. So I was just going for a walk on this loop. And it was a, um, I would say I was being mindful, but not in a slow, creepy, creeping along kind of way. But it was just kind of a natural, natural pace walk. And at a certain point, I had the thought, well, what happened to this step of five minutes ago? And it was obviously completely gone. There was nothing of it left. And then my mind just started doing something interesting and said, well, what about three minutes ago? What about one minute ago? That step's gone, completely gone. 30 seconds ago, five seconds ago, one second ago. And so I brought my mind just to the point of the movement and the step continually disappearing, right in the moment, disappearing, disappearing, disappearing. So it's kind of like water over a waterfall, right? If, if you're looking at the lip of the waterfall, that water is tumbling over it continually. You can't hold on to it. You can't hold on to any of the water that's passed over it. Uh, so this was the actual experience of this momentary impermanence of things always just continually falling away. Then my mind remembered this teaching of the Buddha, where he said, when you see impermanence, when you're perceiving impermanence, the mind doesn't cling. When it doesn't cling, it's not agitated. And when it's not agitated, it personally realizes Nibbana. Okay, so that's a powerful statement. I mean, that's taking us from wherever we are now to the highest goal of liberation. But in this kind of exercise that I was doing or experiment, I wanted to test out that teaching in my own experience. So there I was, the steps continually disappearing. Again, just like water over the waterfall, gone, 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 gone. So I was in that direct perception of impermanence and then I checked my mind in that perception was the mind clinking. And I saw that when we're seeing impermanence, experiencing impermanence on that level, it's impossible to cling <laughs> because what, whatever we might want to cling to is gone, right? And it was just so obvious, but it was very interesting to really notice the quality of my mind in that perception of change, right? So, so not only perceiving the change, but actually to check out, is there clinging or not? And then I checked out the second part. When the mind doesn't cling, it's not agitated. Okay, so I just checked, you know, is my mind agitated when in, in this very moment of non-clinging? And it was just so 
uh, it was both so accessible and so profound because it was became eminently clear as I was becoming mindful of my own mind in this perception of change, of not clinging, there was no agitation. So there was the very direct experience of peace in that moment, and maybe it's only for a few moments, but it's genuine. And so that experience of peace is kind of a forerunner, we might say, of Nibbana, in the sense that in that moment, there were no defilements in the mind, because there was no clinging, and there was no agitation. The mind was at peace. Uh, and so we begin to get a real experiential sense of the peace of Nibbana, even if it's momentary. Right? So that's... Uh, so just as a comment on this whole on this whole little story, one of the things I love about the practice and the value of study in the practice, you know, it's often said that concepts and the words like fingers pointing at the moon, and that we shouldn't be attached to the finger. We should look at the moon. Well, that's very accurate. However, so sometimes people take that to mean the finger's not important. But the finger in this sense being all the words, all the teachings, their fingers pointing to the moon, the fingers are important because they're pointing us where we should look, right? So this is a tremendous benefit in the practice. The Dharma is much vaster than our own individual experience. So when we study and we read the texts and we hear the teachings, it's like we're getting lots of fingers pointing to different aspects of the truth. And for me, one of the joys of practice, and this is what really delights me a lot, even in times of suffering, right? It's just taking that interest of looking at the mind often with the help of a teaching like this one. You know, when we're perceiving impermanence, the mind doesn't cling, not agitated. Personally attains the highest peace. So we take a teaching and then look for ourselves. And that's what, for me, enlivens the whole practice. It's like this endless process of discovery. I forgot the question you asked now, but I, I hope that was somehow somehow responded to it. Yes, no, that's great. The question was about impermanence <laughs> and the perception of impermanence and the perception of non-self. And um, I, yeah, I love that story of the kind of visceral sense of impermanence as you're walking in the impermanence of the step. And, one thing that I feel that you're describing there, thinking about the teachings and the importance of study as a support in our practice is the doctrine of the three characteristics, which you address explicitly in the 
Dharma talk that we shared with folks who had been registered by yesterday. And those three characteristics are impermanence, not self, and dukkha, impermanence, dukkha, and non-self. And the way you're describing it is a kind of granular level description of a releasing from clinging that allows for the dukkha to diminish. Do you want to say a little bit more about that? Well, um, I don't know if this is what you're getting at, but this is what's coming to my mind. Uh, so just as, as an explanation for everybody listening, one of the things I learned from Muninjiji, my first teacher, people would ask him questions and then he'd just answer whatever he wanted to answer. <laughs> and sometimes it related to the question, sometimes not, but it was always a good teaching. So I took that on as, <laughs> as my uh, teaching model. <laughs> Uh, so again, uh, I'll respond to what you just said. Uh, sometimes the insights come on, the, as you said, on this very granular level, you know, where, where we're really getting very precise in the moment to moment unfolding and seeing impermanence on that level. Before I go on, I just want to highlight the impermanence part. Um, again, with something that I came across in the discourses. So on one of my last self-retreats, um, I've gotten uh, recently, uh, I've started listening to the suttas, the discourses. They're all on Audible. That's quite amazing. The whole collection, you know, of Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations. Uh, you can download them and you can listen to them. And I find that it's a very uh, impactful way of taking them in. It's quite different than reading. Uh, and so it's a nice adjunct to actually reading them. Uh, so I was listening to one of the suttas and I came across a phrase that I must have read many times, but it never had impact. But when I listened to it, the words jumped out at me and really have had a very strong impact uh, on my practice. And it's very simple. You know, I was talking about how everything has the nature to change. And then the Buddha used this phrase to become otherwise. It's like everything in its nature is always becoming otherwise. And I think that the reason it, it jumped out of me is it's a very unusual phrase in English. You know, where, as we might say, everything changes. Oh, yeah, I know that. You know, it's such a familiar, such a familiar phrase. We almost hardly pay attention to, to its deeper meaning. But when I heard, oh, things are always becoming otherwise. And that this is the very nature of phenomena. It's like it made the truth of change so vivid. And just as a couple of examples, you know, I was doing some walking meditation then, and all of a sudden, you know, my knee started to hurt a little bit. Oh, becoming otherwise. It hadn't been hurting, and it started hurting. Becoming otherwise. Came back into my house, something broke. Oh, becoming otherwise. And that phrase, I've just started incorporating it into my life, acknowledging this truth of everything changing. So, 
I just wanted to offer that in case some of you might find that phrase useful in your own practice and lives, becoming otherwise all the time. Nothing is stable, nothing is staying the same. Okay, so sometimes we are seeing this on a granular level, but there are insights into the three characteristics that also happen on, you know, we might say the ordinary level of perception, not on this very refined momentary level. So for example, one of the meanings of the Pali word anatta, which is generally translated as non-self or selflessness. But one of the meanings of that Pali term is also ungovernable, meaning that things are happening according to their own laws. We could say according to the laws of nature, according to the laws of how the mind works. They're not happening because we want them or not want them to behave a certain way. So the body, not in this, not in this granular microscopic way, but just in our ordinary perception of the body, we can see this so clearly. You know, the body ages, the body gets sick, the body dies. It's ungovernable. We, we could say, may my body never get sick. That's not gonna happen because it's the nature of the body to age, to get sick, to die. So the ungovernable aspect of it points to the dukkha characteristic. It's because things are ungovernable and not subject to our will that the material form, for example, is gonna go through stages of suffering, of unpleasantness, of decay. And this is not a mistake. This is just the nature of the physical elements. And it's true for everybody. Likewise, the nature of the mind is ungovernable, not subject to our will, it's following its own laws. So have you ever thought to begin a sitting with the, with the uh, intention, may there be no thoughts in my mind for this sitting? <laughs> well, we might, we might make that intention, but most likely, unless we're in a very deep state of concentration, thoughts are going to arise. It's following its own laws, it's ungovernable. So here's an interesting connection between selflessness and dukkha. Um, there's another aspect to anatta, those selflessness. And this is why I find this whole notion of non-self uh, it's really fascinating because on the ungovernable side, it's a condition for dukkha, for suffering. But there's also a liberative quality of selflessness, which is that 
yes, all of the elements of mind and body are simply following their own laws. And if we're not identified with them, if we're not creating the sense of self through our identification with the body or feelings or perceptions or different mind states or consciousness, if we're not identifying with them, that's the doorway to freedom. So then even as things are changing, you know, and unreliable, the mind is free if we're not taking it to be self. Um, so I just find it interesting that anatta or selflessness in one direction points to dukkha and in the other direction points to freedom. Uh, and again, this is why this whole notion of selflessness is so um, central uh, to the Buddhist teaching. Great, thank you. Um, there have been a number of really great questions that have come in and we could be here for the next week just unpacking them. And I wish, I wish we had time, but one question that several people have asked in different ways is when you speak about the mind is free or the mind is at peace, um, the temptation might be to think, well, that is the self. And what you just said is it's precisely not identifying with the self or with the mind as self that is liberated. And can you say a little bit more about how one might think about this very subtle way of relating to the mind that we say the mind is free or the mind is liberating, but the mind is not, not self? Well, <laughs> Uh, the, there are different ways or different uh, yeah, different ways of approaching that question. From one side, we, we could say, yeah, peace is a quality of the mind. Until we're fully enlightened, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. So it itself is... Uh, part of the changing process and the feeling of peace itself is impersonal. It doesn't belong to anybody. It, it's not that, just like you said uh, earlier on, instead of saying, I'm angry, we could reframe that and saying there is anger. So in just the same way, instead of saying, I'm peaceful, a more accurate way of describing it would say, there's peace in the mind at this point. So then there's, a, there's something underneath that. And I, I referenced that a little earlier on, you know, in the conversation in saying that the most subtle uh, manifestation of this sense of self is in our identification with the knowing, you know, the identification with awareness, with consciousness. You know, so I'm the one knowing the mind at peace. 
uh, and that's where, uh, if that identification is there, then there will be a felt sense of self in that experience of peace. Yeah, I'm the one feeling it. I'm the one knowing it. So it gets really important to begin to explore ways of cutting through the identification with the knowing mind, cutting through the identification with consciousness. And there are many ways to do it and different Buddhist traditions talk about different ways of doing it. So I'll just highlight a few and I think uh, maybe some of them were in the article that was said, I, I can't remember now. So one way of breaking that identification with the knowing mind happens naturally in the course of Vipassana meditation when at a certain stage of insight, we begin to see that what's happening moment after moment is a pairwise progression of knowing an object. There's knowing of a sight, knowing of a sound, knowing of a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought. And we can have the experience in meditation of seeing moment after moment, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, arising and passing very rapidly. So in that experience, we are seeing directly the impermanent nature of consciousness itself. We see that consciousness is not just one steady state thing, you know, that is who we are, that consciousness itself is a conditioned phenomena arising and passing in each moment. So we begin to be in that flow of things changing and, and just using the analogy of the water over a waterfall, you know, seeing that flow of impermanence, we can see that with consciousness itself. It's the knowing and the object together, arising and disappearing, 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 disappearing. And so that begins to cut any view of consciousness as being I, as being self, because it's continually disappearing. So that's one way. Another way, which I've talked a lot quite a lot, you know, in different contexts. And this really changed my practice a lot, was when I began to reframe the language of my experience in the passive voice, you know? And so usually in our language, we speak generally in the active voice, you know, I'm feeling, I'm thinking, I'm doing this, I'm going there. And so in our very language, we are reinforcing the subject. We are reinforcing the sense of self, just in the way we conventionally speak. At a certain point in my practice, I was doing walking meditation, and I don't know what prompted it, but at a certain point, I just reframed it in the passive voice. For example, I was walking and just feeling the sensations of the movement, and I reframed it to myself, sensations being known, rather than I'm knowing the sensations. 
So just this linguistic shift from I'm knowing the sensations to sensations being known had this amazing benefit because in that passive voice, there's no subject. It's just things being known moment after moment. And what I saw, and I would really encourage those of you who are interested, it's particularly um, accessible in walking, although this could be applied in any activity, but I think it'd be very, very obvious in the walking. Just to do some walking practice, you know, where you're feeling the movement and framing it and really experiencing it in this way, oh, sensations being known. That's all that's happening. Sensations being known. And there were so many interesting um, consequences of this. First, it became completely effortless because there wasn't an eye trying to be mindful, you know, or an eye trying to track the movement. I was just moving and the sensations were being known quite spontaneously and perfectly. It's like they were being known exactly as they were appearing. So the whole, the whole endeavor of walking meditation became completely effortless right? and very precise at the same time. So it was an amazing shift simply coming from this shift of language that took the subject, I, out of the equation, things being known. Then if you can settle into that for a while and get easy with it, where it just becomes a kind of natural way of being with experience, then you could take it to a next step, which also gets really fascinating. Okay, these sensations being known, then we might ask the question, known by what? <laughs> so that gets really interesting. And this is not a this is not a kind of intellectual inquiry. We are right in the experience of things being known. So we're there in the experience, it's not thinking about it. In the very experience of things being known. And we ask the question, known by what? It's like turning the mindfulness back onto the knowing. And this is where it gets very interesting and ties into a lot of Tibetan and Zen teachings, which emphasize this point. Known by what? When we look, there's nothing to find and yet the knowing is happening. So this is the great mystery of consciousness. There's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is there. So in, for example, in some uh, Tibetan and Dzogchen teachings, they call it the union of emptiness and awareness, or emptiness and clarity. The knowing is there, nothing to find. So I'll just give you one other uh, uh, place where I've played with this, you know, and explored it. Sometimes just in sitting, and if sounds are arising, 
so you know we're, we're all just in the experience of hearing the common ordinary experience so i'm sitting sounds are appearing in the mind and then i'll ask myself the question can i find what's knowing the sound you know when i look again there's nothing to find and yet the hearing is still happening so this begins to really cut through any identification with the knowing as being self precisely because there is nothing to find um, so just one last little thing and this is uh, a little personal uh, just in the last few years i've started uh, uh, playing with some uh, writing of poetry which has been a really a very delightful thing. And it's very meditative for me. So I was doing walking meditation on one retreat and this haiku appeared spontaneously in my mind uh, because I was hearing some, uh, the sound of some birds. So I was just walking and, you know, hearing, hearing the birds. So this is the haiku. <laughs> bird song in the empty sky of my mind you know and it just captured the moment because the bird song was in the empty sky externally but also in the empty sky of my mind and that captures everything i've just been talking about everything is arising in the empty sky of our minds. And if we can see it in that way, we're not identified with what's arising and we're not identifying with the mind because we're experiencing it as being empty, unfindable. Um, so I, I don't know if uh, you know that connected with any of you, but if it did, feel free to use it in your practice, no need to send any royalties. Thank you, Joseph. Um, I felt like what you just said was a little bit more practice oriented in general. And I wanted to share a question that I found very moving um, from someone. And I'll, I think I'll just read the question so I, I can capture it. And I, I can imagine maybe others um, might have a similar question. So the questioner says, for those of the life-limiting illness, the loss of our lives, our loved ones, our existence can intensify the clinging to the self. Dharma practice with an insight into impermanence and non-self as a healthy person was so much easier than as a person with a life-limiting illness. The intensity of grief and loss and the intensified clinging to the self feels like a setback. I'm aware of the bardo, but is there a more practical approach to meditation and dharma practice that is effective with the immediacy and intensity of life-limiting illness? It's a big question. It, it is a big question. And it, it's interesting because I have a close friend and um, long time uh, yogi student uh, who um, 
has pancreatic cancer and she's been going along, but just in the last few days, really in steep decline. Um, and I just got a text today, you know, about it. So it's very much in my mind. It's pretty amazing. She, she was an experienced practitioner, done a lot of practice. And it was amazing to me and, and uh, inspiring because of her practice and of having seen this whole mind-body process as being a flow of impermanence, just what we were talking about earlier and in seeing the impermanence of the mind not clinging, because she had been well-practiced in that, really understood this whole process, this whole dying process. First as being lawful, you know, it's this, this, at one point or another, this is just the nature of what is going to happen for all of us in one way or another, you know, so it's not to think of it as being in some way unnatural. This is an expression of the Dharma and the Buddha was very explicit about this. Um, some of the reflections he offered on the nature of illness and death. And he suggested people practicing, practice this on a daily basis so that we do have a chance to integrate it uh, in our understanding in our lives. He just said something so simple, but we really have to uh, water the seeds of that understanding. He said, should reflect daily that what has the nature to age will age, and I am not exempt. What has the nature to grow ill will grow ill, and I am not exempt. What has the nature to die will die, and I am not exempt. And for me, as I practice that reflection, the part that stands out is that phrase, I am not exempt. Because even at a time that's kind of not necessarily life-threatening, but some illness or some suffering in the body, even though intellectually I know I'm not exempt, very often there can be the feeling somewhere, you know, well, I, I, I am exempt. But when we're faced, you know, when, as, as the person who wrote the question, are really in the process and we realize, yes, I am not exempt from this natural process. The more we take that in, the more we reflect on it, the less clinging there is to the thought that, well, it should be different or things should stay the same way or they should be the way they were. That's not the nature of the Dharma. It's not the nature of the truth. And going back to my friend, who's just right now in the dying process, but was so remarkable and a fruit 
such a clear fruit of her practice was her mind was her mind was really at peace with it all. And she was, you know, just filled with a lot of love and, and understanding in this whole process. Uh, and of course, within the Buddhist framework of understanding, you know, of many lives and rebirth, uh, can see the whole dying process, a, a phrase that um, had come to my mind some time ago, as seeing the dying process as the birth canal to the next existence, right? And so we're beginning to see this whole unfolding in a very large context. Um, Yeah, and it, it really, re the question really reinforces the importance in whatever our situation is, whether we're still healthy or we're faced with, you know, a, a limiting illness or in the dying process, it really points to the importance of seeing that there is nothing, no situation outside of our practice. Right? And so whatever the circumstances, no matter how challenging or difficult, can we really look and practice the mindfulness of whatever it is that's going on and the investigation, the clear perception of the flow of changes that are happening. And it may be that this flow of changes at a particular stage in life may be predominantly unpleasant experiences. There's no guarantee that the body is gonna go out in an easeful way, but the mind can be at ease if we understand uh, the naturalness of the process and the impermanent nature of it. You know, so that we're really in the flow of changes as they're happening. Um, there's one phrase the Buddha used very often as people would come to him as they were ill and dying. And there are many stories, you know, in the suttas uh, of people coming to the Buddha at times like this. And he, and describing just a lot of suffering in the body. And he would say, though the body is afflicted, your mind can be at peace. So that's, that's really a, uh, a call to us to really apply our understanding of the practice, even in these very challenging situations. Uh, and it's possible. And I, I mentioned my friend just as an example, it is possible for us to do this. Thank you, Joseph. Um, the way you talk about your friend is really inspiring. Um, 
It inspired and, me. I mean, she yeah. really, really did inspire me. But the fruit of the practice was so, so tangible. Yeah. And I know for me in my practice, it ebbs and flows what I am capable of. And I think of the questioner talking about the intensity of grief and loss and thinking about, well, there may be periods where, yeah, that intensity leads to this deep, deep sense of loss and what one might think of in a Buddhist framework as clinging. And then there are moments when that is able to relinquish a little. And uh, as someone who is not a white knuckler in meditation and not always perhaps striving as much as I could, I have, uh, I have a certain sympathy for um, letting the rhythms of our practice ebb and flow and, um, yeah, so, describing. Go ahead. Let me just uh, speak to that point a little bit. Of course, there are ebbs and flows on, on, in many dimensions, many domains. But I think we can really cultivate a quality of interest and investigation, even in the time of the ebbs, right? So even when things are difficult, and we're really caught up in the suffering. For me, times of suffering can pique my interest. Like, in, in a way, those are the times that are a great wake-up call, you know, because they're so intense and we can be so caught in different kinds of suffering so then the question is, are we simply kind of getting lost in the suffering or can we really arouse an interest? What is going on in the mind now that is causing the suffering, right? So, so we use that very intense situation to investigate our own minds. And for me, um, the times of suffering in a way have become the most insightful more insightful often than times when everything's just flowing along smoothly and you know everything feels wonderful if my mind is suffering i want to know well what's the cause of that suffering if the buddha said yes the body can be afflicted but the mind can be at peace so when my mind is not at peace why so just to just one one little thing this could be a whole we could do a whole evening or, or course on this. But you mentioned, you know, when we're really caught in the grief, you know, of loss. I've thought a lot about this. Um, and I think sometimes that we get caught in the grief because we equate it or conflate it uh, with love. You know, and somehow, not necessarily the person who wrote the question, but it can happen, you know, that people might feel, oh, if I'm not grieving, it means I'm not loving, right? And so in a certain way, we're feeding the grief because we, we don't want to let go of it because it might be that in our minds we think 
letting go of the grief means letting go of the love. And I would just suggest an investigation of that assumption. Because in my experience, these are two completely different emotions. And that in fact, when we come back to the love we feel for whatever, it might be another person or love of life. When we reconnect with the feeling of love, my experience is that in those moments, grief is not there because they're really two different things. But we often don't, have not investigated clearly how we feel in each with each of those emotions. And so we conflate them. And that's what can keep us caught in them. Um, so again, this is a very big topic. And uh, I don't know, maybe that maybe that reflection might be helpful. Yeah, I, I, I found that helpful. Um, a lot of the topics we've been discussing are very big topics. <laughs> There's a saying that a philosophy that can be put in a nutshell deserves to be in a nutshell. And none of these, uh, none of these questions lend themselves to small answers. They all beg to be unpacked. Um, and here's another one that <laughs> we, we don't have too long, but there's several questions that address this. And so I'm going to combine a few here. And it's something I'm confident you have thought a lot about. And that is, um, on the one hand, there's this sense of this explicit claim that we need to cultivate a way of not clinging, non-identification with the aggregates. Um, and yet, um, for people who may not be white men like you and me, um, who are in, have identities that have historically and today are marginalized in a variety of different ways and different contexts, that hearing, oh, don't identify is different because there's already a kind of, like for you or me, um, a kind of stability from which we are non-identifying as opposed to an identity which is lived out in a very different way. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about that. Yeah, no, thanks. It's a really important question. You know, and it's come up uh, frequently uh, because it really, it points to something that I think really needs addressing. And it has to do really, I think, with uh, a fundamental part of the Buddhist teachings when he talked about the two truths, you know, the relative level of truth and the more ultimate level of truth. And these are not two separate things. They're the same thing seen on different levels. So I'll just, just give a, a simple example and then refer back to the specifics of the question. You know, so I'm holding up this cup 
And on the relative level, it's a cup and it has a certain shape and made of certain materials and I take care of it. And I use it as a cup. On another level, if we looked at this under a high power microscope, cup would disappear. It would be another whole level of reality. There's no cup. It's just, you know, atoms and electrons and subatomic particles, whole different level of reality. What's interesting about understanding these two levels of truth is that first, we need to attend to the relative conventional level of our reality. And so in the, in the question that you raised, okay, what is our, whether it's a racial identity or any other identity and what are the implications for how we're living our lives and the, and the challenges of whatever that particular identity is and the importance of, as the word you use, like finding stability in that identity. So on, on that level, that's essential and important. Uh, and, and we see, I mean, it's, it's, so, cl it's so clear now. Um, uh, the deleterious effects when people don't um, take into account these relative truths, which we're all living, this is the world we're living in. So we need to honor and respect that. At the same time, to the degree that we also understand the more ultimate level of ourselves in, in whatever, whatever uh, personal situation we're in, if we can understand this more ultimate level, whether we think of it in terms of the changing aggregates or the momentary change you know, of things continually disappearing and not clinging, all of that which we've been talking about, to the degree that we have that understanding, then we actually can um, I was going to say work with or manifest or address all the concerns on the relative level with greater clarity and with greater ease. So it's not a bypassing and it's not an ignoring. It's actually connecting with a deeper wisdom of the selflessness of it all, and then using that wisdom to engage in the relative way, you know, in, in or conventional level of understanding of self and other, uh, again, whether it has to do with race or gender identification or whatever it may be, right? We can really uh, uh, work to understand all the dynamics that are at play on that level. But as I say, to the degree that we've touched at least a little bit, uh, the other level, then we can do it with greater freedom, with greater ease. Um, so I think this is really important because 
just as an example of how the two truths can work together. So this is just a, a this was an expression of the Korean Zen master who uh, Sung San Sansanim started the Providence Zen Center. And, um, he just used this phrase, there's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. There's no self on the ultimate level, <laughs> but still, we're manifesting in this world as particular beings, and they're both true, right? And we have to attend to both. Uh, and they're both true. <laughs> We're the same person. <laughs> it's not that one truth is here and the other truth is here. It's all here. And it just depends which level we happen to be paying attention to at a particular time. And so we work to integrate these two levels where we work to understand the dynamics of our conventional reality and all the challenges of it, even as we understand the essential selfless nature of it all. Uh, and I think this, this is really the heart of a mature spiritual practice, the union of these two, not the separation. Well, maybe the heart of the mature spiritual practice is a good note to end on. Um, thank you, Joseph. I should say there were about 12 pages of questions and comments that came in, a lot of really helpful, perceptive, comments and questions and some poetry and recommendations. And <laughs> I have copied and pasted them all and look forward to reading them with more care. There were several people who suggested we should have more of a series. And uh, Joseph and I did have a conversation on Nibbana in January. Maybe we'll have another one at some point there. Um, there are a lot of people expressing their gratitude, Joseph, as, as I do. And I also wanted to thank many of you who have offered Donna when you registered. Um, Donna is the tradition that the institutions that Joseph has started here in Barry follow for um, supporting teachers and Joseph has offered the dana for this evening to the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Um, dana of, is the language, it's in the early Indian languages of Sanskrit and Pali and other Buddhist languages. It is related to our word donation, just it's a gift or generosity. And at various times I've looked through the pages, the, all the pictures that are up and I know some of you have come to Barry in various ways and offered Donna in the kitchen. And um, there are many, many ways of offering Donna. It's the first virtue of the Bodhisattva. Allows us to relinquish things to which we're clinging and also support the immediate needs of others. And in this case, it's the immediate needs of the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies where with every course we make it possible for anybody who wants to come regardless of 
their finances. So um, both residential and online programs, we don't have any limit to uh, our scholarship and this money would go towards supporting others to um, participate in BCBS programs. And thinking about, you know, sometimes we might get attached to a teacher and certainly at BCBS, um, there's a lot of data that is given to teachers. And I just wanna make a, um, a suggestion that it's the institutions such as the Insight Meditation Society, IMS, and Barry Center for Buddhist Studies and publishers that kind of support us all as Buddhists and support the teachers and getting the training and support, provide a framework for people to come and grow in the Dharma and that there is great benefit in supporting institutions that make so much of what we do possible. Joseph, I don't know if you wanna say anything more. Yeah, I'll just, just uh, you know, often it's said that the Buddha would teach in a graduated way. So he didn't start out, you know, when he would first offer teachings, he didn't start out with selflessness or the Four Noble Truths. Or, uh, he led up to that. And it's said that he always started this, these graduated teachings with generosity. And I was just talking about this with somebody and they asked me, well, why do you think he did that? And in reflecting on it, it's because in addition to being of help to so many people, it makes us happy. <laughs> Generosity is just this most wonderful quality uh, that makes us happy. You know, so it's just, uh, it's a wonderful practice. And just to share with you, this is a practice that I've done for many years now. And uh, it's been a source of tremendous joy in my life. So I've undertaken the practice again for quite a while that if I have the thought to give something, and as William said, it it could be money and it often is, but it could be many other things as well. If I have the thought to give, my practice is to do it. Not to second guess myself, not to let the thought pass by. And it's just so interesting to me, you know, just going through my life and I'll have a, I'll have a thought and then I do it. And clearly it's of some help to the recipient, but it's also this source of tremendous happiness in my own life. So uh, I would just encourage you, uh, you know, to, to practice in this way. Uh, it's a beautiful thing uh, for oneself and for others. Thank you so much, Joseph. There is a link that Cassie put in the chat if you, many of you have already done so, and if you would like to offer Donna. And there are many, many ways of offering Donna out in the world to the people you meet in other institutions as well. Joseph, would you be interested in closing with a short meditation I would, again? I would love to. So let's just sit for an hour and a half. And No, okay. <laughs> that would be nice, but uh, uh, many of you are probably getting ready to rest. So we'll just sit for a couple of minutes. 
Again, settle in, take a few deep breaths. And let the breathing find its own rhythm. A key element of meditation is relaxation. So it's not forcing, it's not efforting. Let the body breathe in whatever way it does. And it can be changing breath to breath. And simply let all the sensations of the body breathing arise in the empty sky of your mind. Letting all the words settle, relaxing into a place of ease. And may all the wholesome energy of our practice and our time together be dedicated to the welfare and the happiness and the liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you all, really a delight being together and I hope it was helpful in some way. Have a good evening. Thank you so much, Joseph. Good night, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.